hello there, everybody, and welcome back to Pretend Worlds Real People. As always, I'm Tyler, and would you know it, it is December of 2022. This year's gone by way too fast. It's been a really great year, a very hardworking year, uh, full of, you know, long days and sleepless nights, but we are gearing up for the holidays. So I wanted to let everybody know that for the last two weeks of this month, or I guess the last two weeks of this year, I'm going to take them off to hang out with my family and relax and just, you know, sort of decompress a little bit before I gear up for January with a whole new roster of guests for the show. So just want to let everybody know, if you don't see anything for the last two weeks of December, it is because I am stuffing my face with sugar, caffeine, and probably way too much cheese. Uh, Any hooser, I do want to gear into the reason why you're listening to this episode, and that is because you have seen the plethora of projects our guest this week has directed, written, and or produced, and that would be the incomparable Monica Mitchell. She is just, I can't even begin to describe her. There's something so ethereal uh, about her when talking to her, when she talks about you know, filmmaking, how she got into it, and the fact that she left a career, a corporate career, to make her, you know, first film and just dive right into this industry. And lo and behold, she has crafted an entire career out of it. And she's doing pretty dang well, you know, just bought a new house, you know, NBD, no big deal. Uh, (laughs) But she was so much fun to chat with. I hope I get to work with her in the future. In fact, I, I trying to manifest that with her, <laughs> whether it's just auditioning for her or working uh, on one of her projects. But she is just a joy. I don't want to delay any further. Let's jump right in and let's have a lovely chat with the great Monica Mitchell. My name is Monica Mitchell, and uh, I've been a director of film and television since August of 1999. And how the heck did that start for you? Because that's a I've directed a few things that are super duper small, very low budget, if any budget at all. And I was I I felt crazy on day one. So did you always want to be a director, always want to be a filmmaker? Yeah, I felt crazy on day one for sure. so let's see. So I've also written and produced, but I wouldn't say that I headline as a writer or a producer ever. There are skills that I have, but not skills that I employ often. And they've gotten a little rusty, frankly, over the years. Um, so I started going to the Sundance Film Festival in 1996 as a audience member. And Uh, Even in high school, like I wrote and directed a musical um, for my Latin club. And I was always really into the writing and the storytelling. I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina. And as far as I knew, movies just sort of magically appeared in the cinema. I didn't know that like making them was an actual job that you could have. So it took a really long time for me to understand that there were human beings that did that kind of storytelling and that they actually made a wage. It it was all very confusing and magical to me. So, but as a high schooler, I could write. And so I wrote quite a bit. Um, But then I lost that for a while. Um, I got really distracted by making money. And um, I, had a lot of jobs. I couldn't really find the right fit. Probably the best fit I ever had was with Fidelity Investments. And um, I loved the people there and I loved the work that I did. But by March of 1998, it was no longer a good fit. And I had been to Sundance in 96, 97, and 98. So for three years at that point, And I went with this darling boyfriend that I had who actually wound up executive producing my first short. (laughs) And um, he was great. Uh, And we really went for the movies. Like it was old school. It was when Sundance was little and all of these movies had gotten made for a million or $2 million out of the passion of some filmmaker. And 
we would see 40 or 50 movies and stay for the Q and a, and I would ask a thousand questions. And, you know, I remember being at the first ever screening of Darren Aronofsky's pie and, um, you know, Brad Anderson's happy accidents and, uh, asking, you know, if Brad, you know, is a friend to this day, like we wound up doing the festival circuit again together in 2000. And, um, it just humanized the role for me. It made me realize that people that write and direct films are flesh and blood creatures and they make mistakes, but you don't die from them. And I don't know. I, I started dreaming all the time about making movies. It was all I could think about. And I would sit, I started taking the Robert McKee class story and I would sit on my couch, I had hundreds and hundreds of VHS tapes, <clears throat> excuse me. And I would sit on my couch, you could order scripts online from this service. So I would sit on my couch and I would look at the script and I would look at the movie that they made. And that's how I learned what shots were. And then um, thanks to Jeff, who was a stockbroker, that's the fellow who um, we had broken up by this point, but we remained good friends. He helped me raise money. And Christy Cashman, who's a wonderful, wonderful actor, doesn't act nearly enough. She has a fantastic lifestyle, so I guess she can't be tempted as often as I'd like to see. But um, <laughs> she helped me raise money. And between the three of us, we raised money. Um, and I really, when I made my first short film, what I did right, I did a lot of things wrong, but the thing that I did right was I got the opinions of real professionals. You know, um, I went to Alice Stone, uh, who's David Mamet's editor, and I asked her to read the script and give me notes. And I wound up actually giving her credit in the writing section. Um, because she just gave me that confidence more than anything to take that step forward. And then, you know, I became a SAG signatory. So instead of using actors that um, are just struggling or just got off the bus, I was able to draw from actors from New York and Boston and, and get the finest. Like SAG actors want to work. And they want their union benefits. And if you're paying them a SAG contracted wage, they will show up and they will bring it. Because um, there wasn't a lot of dialogue. My first short was Night Deposit. And it's about a woman that runs a black market sperm bank out of her apartment. So, um, you know, I got Parrish Kennington to do the design. And she had designed for the Boston Ballet their um, world shared costumes for the Nutcracker. And um, just to, glorious person. And then Christy was amazing. And um, Eileen Schreiber was a cinematographer that came up from New York to Boston to shoot it for me. So the one thing that I knew how to do from working in corporate America that I knew was important was hiring people that were really good at their jobs. Mm -hmm. And so even though the first time I stepped on a film set in my entire life, I had never even visited one. Um, actually, that's not true. I did, uh, Sarah Green, David Mamet's producer, did set me up to watch him on State in Maine. So that was um, illuminating. Um, David Mamet, infamously, not a very nice person, but uh, it was fascinating. He probably has the opposite style of me, and perhaps it was because I watched him. Like, he can sometimes put his actors to a stopwatch and make them do 30, 40 takes until they hit the mark at the precise second that, you know, he's editing to the frame in his head. He knows what frame he wants to cut on. So, you know, if he, if they don't look left at the precise, like, it's amazing. And anyway, <laughs> uh, I digress. So yes, I had been on a film set once, but that was it. And so I walked onto this film set and I was the writer, director, and producer of this movie. And to all of these amazing professionals who had shown up because I had gone to the trouble of, of becoming a union employer, it was a job. It was like a real job. And they were serious 
And I had to bring it. I had to have the answers. Fortunately, because I had developed this tiny little nine page script for over a year, I actually did have the answers. There was nothing that I hadn't already imagined. Um, and I struggled, you know, my first editor abandoned me and out of the kindness of Bill, whose last name I can't remember, but he has an Oscar for creating the avid. He was the person who ultimately helped me get the film edited. Like I just, I had amazing people. Um, I met him in an elevator, by the way, when I was sobbing. (laughs) (laughs) I was just this girl sobbing out of money, broke, no editor carrying cans of film because I shot it on film. Like, so when you edited it, we were editing it with a razor and gluing the two pieces of film together. And so I was just lamenting all of the frames that I had destroyed. And I get in the elevator with the man that invented the Avid. Like it was one of those things. I, it's hard not to believe in a higher power when those kinds of things happen to you. So uh, then the movie got into slam dance. Um, And I was in an on the first ever online competition. This was January of 2000. And they had never done this before. They were calling it the Anarchy Audience Award. And um, so because of the whole online thing, because this was so cutting edge, there were all these films at Sundance at the same time. And the cover of the Salt Lake City art section that Sunday, that first Sunday of Sundance is the, this most coveted spot. But because my tiny little film was doing something that no other film had ever done, it would, it above all those movies in Sundance competing for Oscars and whatnot, my little movie got that front page of the art section. And <laughs> um, so it won the online because of course everybody checked it out and shocked me, but uh, it set my career in motion. And by that April, I had moved from Boston to LA and that short film went to over 120 film festivals. And I don't even know how many best picture awards it won dozens. And um, uh, it qualified for Oscar consideration and I've been a director ever since. Oh my sweet Jesus. <laughs> that is it, okay. One, it's a whirlwind of a story. Yeah, it was a it was it was so life altering. Yeah. Nothing was recognizable between March of 1998 and March of 2000. No part of my life was recognizable. And with that that uh, I say sudden, but it wasn't sudden, but with that shift in your life that could seem like a, a tidal wave of just crazy opportunities, did you have to, because it seems almost daunting. Did you have to like put yourself in the bathroom, look in the mirror and then talk yourself up? Did you feel any imposter syndrome moving from the East Coast to the West Coast, having this, knowing that it has all these accolades, it's doing so well, you're obviously crushing it. You're made for this. Did you still feel any of that imposter syndrome? I didn't. And you know, what's funny, I've been asked that question about several things um, in my life. Uh, The gift my parents gave me, um, and no childhood is perfect, but what my parents really gave me was confidence. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember David Kaplan, he had done this beautiful movie Uh, Little Red Rotting Hood with Christina Ricci. And um, we got to be friends. And Jeff, my executive producer, the three of us were talking. And um, Jeff said something like, David asked me something like that. Like, like the world has just landed in your lap. And I'm like, no, I I feel pretty confident I can exploit this opportunity. And... um, I just thought about it very practically, of course. And, uh, and Jeff was like, Oh, trust me. And David goes, no, no, I see. I understand. There's a lot there. Um, and, and it's hard. I think one of the challenges as a woman director, particularly early in my career was 
Um, men who were hiring me didn't really know what to do with a then young, pretty girl who was a hundred percent certain that she could do it. Like they maybe wanted to guide you or mentor you. And they were used to women pretending to be less than to make them feel comfortable. So it's a blessing and a curse. Um, I've grown into my confidence now. It fits me that I'm older. Um, it's more expected because I'm operating at a different level. Now I get hired because of it. So um, that's nice. 23 years later. But uh, yeah, I didn't feel imposter syndrome. It's funny. Um, my now former husband, but then boyfriend, I was directing him in my first feature and we were brushing our teeth at the mirror one day and he said, I just don't understand. I watch you all day and you know how to do everything. How is that possible? Because he'd been in the business for 20 years at that point. And I was like, I literally have no answer for that. I was born to do this. I think I was born with the information somewhere in the depths of my lizard brain. Because the other thing I will say about it is I can think of no other time when I am more connected to the earth and happier than when I am on set directing. And that's a beautiful thing. Not, not everybody can, I'm very few people have that, you know, that comfort in what they're, what they're doing. Right. I mean, I, I personally, I never felt comfortable. I never felt like I belonged until I was on a film set for the first time. And mm -hmm. I'm, I've just been an actor for the last 10 years. Cause that's where mm -hmm. I feel like I can enrich and my, my soul is, is live. And so I completely get it. It's just, it's, it's hard to describe that to certain people. <laughs> it's such a, yeah. I'm so lucky. I was at a dinner recently with um, a bunch of people my age and they were all talking about retiring. And I was like, well, I'll never, like, I have, I have no plan and um, good thing too, since I have a 12 year old, but um, I, uh, I was like, you know, I have this job that just makes me so fundamentally happy. That's such a, integral part of my identity and I can do it as much or as little as I want and it pays me handsomely like I, I can't actually imagine why I would stop I mean until they're just until I'm too decrepit or until the hours are brutal the hours are really brutal but yeah until I'm too decrepit or they won't hire me anymore I suppose I'll just keep going forever yeah, I honestly, I hope so. The world needs your gift. <laughs> we we need your creativity. And I, having heard that story, uh, you know, about you making that that short and everything it did and, and making that move, what were those subsequent years like with that behind you? Did you feel like you, with every project, do you feel like you have more to, to prove to yourself um, for just more of like artistic uh, integrity? Do you have like a a goal in mind each time you're directing something or, or writing something, or do you just go with whatever project comes your way? Interesting. I mean, I definitely pursue certain things. Mm -hmm. um, so there were a bunch of questions in there. So the first one was, what were the first yeah, years like? <laughs> Coffee. Coffee's been, um, been a little crazy. But yeah, uh, what were the, the following years like? So the following after years yeah. were... Um, very emotional. Um, I this wonderful patron who then the executive produced my second short. His name's Tom Herman. Lovely, just wonderful, wonderful man. I had the opportunity to have my film. Um, so right after Slam Dance, it was invited to the Mardi Gras Film Festival, which is this huge bacchanalia almost in Sydney and oh my god do those people know how to party but that plus um it's a bit of pride and so like 300,000 LGBTQ people from all over the globe but particularly from the southern hemisphere descend on Sydney at the same time 
And so my short had the opportunity to open in front of Pedro Almodovar's All About My Mother. And they were screening it on this 90 foot screen that was out on the water next to the Sydney Opera House. And then everybody would sit outside on the, in that public park. Um, and I didn't think I could go. And Tom flew me there. And I landed um, in part of that festival. I saw things I cannot unsee. <laughs> it was mind blowing, but a moment that I can still imagine and feel on a visceral level was listening to hundreds of thousands of people laugh at something that I had made, that I had created out of nothing. There was nothing. And then I thought of this little twist, this joke, and I made it part of an audiovisual medium. And then it made all those people laugh. And I was hooked. Like, as hard as the next few years were, at that moment, I have to say, between winning Slam Dance and that moment, there was no turning back for me. Um, something like I had, I had just been touched in a way that if I left it, I would always crave it. So, um, you know, the next few years involved an enormous amount of day jobs. Um, terrible. I did terrible things. I was a terrible person. Um, <laughs> but, you know, jobs that I lied to get resumes that I entirely manufactured. Um, and jobs that I would pretend I was going to have forever that I absolutely knew I had no intention of staying in. And um, I had no qualms about it. And uh, I made my next short witness, which is a guy, about a guy. It's told all through security camera footage. And it's about a guy that generates so much bad karma in the course of a day that it finally kills him. And um, then I made Break a Leg, uh, which, you know, if I had any sense, it's, it's one of those things. If I read it as a seasoned director, I would never make it at 31 locations and 64 speaking parts. But running around LA with the airy camera, 35 millimeter, or calling the Fujifilm rep and crying and begging him to bring me short ends in the trunk of his car under the cloak of darkness. Like I would have never made it, but because like, if you handed it to me today, I'd tell you it was impossible. But we made it and we made it for like nothing, less than $500,000, maybe two hundred and fifty. dollars I can't even remember, but it was nothing. And, um, and then it went on and it won awards as well. And they just, the positive feedback kept feeding me like I would be ready to quit. I had always admired John Landis. He was always my favorite. Mm. And I was enormously pregnant. And, um, with my first child and it just seemed so hard, like it's hard enough to be a woman director, but to be a woman director who's carrying a 10 pound baby, like it just, it felt like it was uphill both ways. And, uh, the Phoenix film festival gave a cash prize for best picture of $25,000 and John Landis was the head of the jury. And so I waddled onto a plane and I went down there and um it was like people were joking that my movie break a leg was the lord of the rings of the of the film festival because it was nominated for the awards in every category but every category came and went and we didn't win we didn't win we didn't win and then it got the best picture and we won we didn't win all the little things that add up to best picture but we won best picture and so i got to accept this award from this man that i had admired for 20 years mm -hmm. And, you know, it just seems like there were times that I know were crushing. My family probably remembers them the best. I know. I remember sobbing. I remember feeling destitute. I remember being broke. I remember declaring bankruptcy. Like, I remember all of those things. But it's like childbirth. You look back on it now and you just see the times when you were so close to giving up, but the universe just 
pushed you over that hump with one little piece of positive feedback or one piece of reinforcement. And the next thing you know, you know, you're giving birth to that baby in Canada and you're directing Robson Arms for CTV and you're married to an actor and now your life looks like you've been doing this forever. You know, that was 2004. So, and suddenly, you know, I had an agent in Barbara Bird, who's still my agent to this day, or now she's one of four, but, um, you know, she's believed in me for 20 years. And I, I look back and, and yeah, that was really the time when suddenly it was the new normal. But I still struggled. I didn't really make my living this way until 2014. I would say really? it takes 14 or 15 years to, I mean, Vancouver is one of the most expensive cities in the world. So maybe if I lived in a normal place, but the problem is that movies don't get made in normal places. They get made in LA and New York and Toronto and Vancouver. So um, it was probably 2014 before I could honestly, yeah, I still, I, I was still doing bookkeeping for a doula company and I was still a certified doula in 2014. Like I would go home after shooting all day and work on the books of this company at night um, because I was making so little to direct those movies. I directed four movies that year um, and I was exhausted and I had two little kids, you know, um, Luca was four and, and Martin was 10. So, uh, and at that point I was single. So that was a really, really hard time, but that was the first year where I knew I had to let go of the day job. Mm -hmm. The day job was the thing that had to go. I like, I have no words for that amount of energy you had to expel each <laughs> and every day. And still come home to these, you know, these bright eyed kiddos who look up to you and act like, oh, no, everything's cool. Everything's great. That's I the amount of sacrifice you poured into your career has obviously, you know, paid off with where you are now. But uh, I usually don't ask this till, you know, the latter end of the podcast. But I kind of want to ask it now yeah, but for people who are either trying to start out in this industry, whether they want to be a, a director, writer, producer, actor, or maybe they're in it right now and they're trying to, to stay in it. Do you have any advice you could give them, uh, especially right now when they're feeling overwhelmed with everything outside of work? You know, what, what is a piece of advice you've held on to uh, that maybe you could pass on to our listeners? Well, at first, it, it, it's funny. I just recently was asked this uh, on a personal level. So, and this was the advice that was given to me, and it's true. Because I'll tell you, it never gets easier. If you ask me, I know from the outside, I look ridiculously successful now. I still feel like I struggle with, and I do with certain things, th things that I want to do. I, I lose jobs to other people all the time. So um, what I would say is if you can do anything else, and this was always, everyone told me this, do it. Like if you can, if you can tolerate any other job, take it um, because it doesn't really get easier. Um, but if you have to do it, accept it, keep low overhead. That was what my father always told me was the secret to being an artist is low overhead. And I will say one of the reasons like this is such personal information, but one of the reasons that I'm struggling now is I always kept ridiculously low overhead until a year ago, really low. I lived way beneath my means and it was great because I could turn jobs down if I needed to. I could take time off if I needed to. I felt a little bit like I was steering the ship, but a, a series of things happened and I made a bunch of financial commitments, not the least of which my oldest son uh, is a freshman at McGill University, which is expensive. And so, um, and I moved to a more expensive house so that my youngest son could uh, go to the high school he wants to go to. And um, so now I put myself back in the position where I need to work for the first time in many years. And 
it doesn't get any easier. It doesn't. So I guess the other thing, so it's do something else if you can. If you can't do something else, keep the lowest overhead you can. Never accept debt of any kind. Never use a credit card. Don't finance a car. If you can't pay cash for it, you can't buy it. Like keep it low and you'll be able to sleep nights, um, which is good for the creative brain, but it's the only thing that will work. And then the last one is um, tomorrow's a new day. Mm. Like you will have moments where you feel destitute and you will sob, but tomorrow's a new day. So you can never give up. You decided to take this trek, be determined, believe in yourself, never, ever, ever give up. It might take you five, 10, 15 years, 40, doesn't matter. Because when you're on your deathbed and you look back, you will always be glad that you were not saying, I wish, I, I wish I'd been a filmmaker, but I didn't have the guts to try. That's a regret. What is not a regret is I tried for 40 years to be a filmmaker. I failed, so I became a plumber. So you failed. So what? So everybody does. So what? That's not a regret. So don't build regrets. Just keep trying. That's the most important thing, I think. Yeah, I, I think those are incredibly pertinent to all facets of the industry, especially right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and like you said, it's something that uh, has been brought up a lot on this podcast, especially is the the time itself is not important because it could take somebody a year, five years, but it could also take somebody 20, 30, 40 years. It, it, it's all uh, you know, special and specific and unique to each person. And when it comes to your, I'm really interested to ask you this, when it comes to your inspiration outside of, you know, John Landis, mm-hmm. when it comes to direction, I mean, when I, when I'm writing scripts, um, for example, I'll think of like a certain song for a certain project mm-hmm. and that's like my inspiration, but what inspires you for certain shots for, you know, like what, what's your, uh, your directing process like as far as prep goes? I should probably ask it that mm-hmm. way. Okay, prep. Um, so, you know, I have to say I am guilty of, I read a script and to me then after I, I read it three times, once I've read it three times in my head, the movie's already happened. Hmm. I've already seen it. And I think that when people talk about what's your vision, um, I think this is something it took me a long time to understand that that doesn't happen to everyone, that that is really a director's, I don't know, gift, talent, task. Like that's why they hire us is that when I, when I read that script the third time, I have seen the movie now. And so it just becomes very practical. I'm just collecting that, those shots. I'm creating that, visual material to piece it together so that everyone else can see the movie that I've already seen. And I think that's like, that goes back to sort of the confidence that David Kaplan was talking about. I'm not making it up as I go along. Like I have the answers, you know, I know the room is blue. I know her shoes need to be red. I like, I know these things because I've already seen it. And so then it's really about communicating it. I mean, the entire prep process is taking that movie from your head, putting it in other people's heads so they can deliver the practical, so they can make sure that, you know, the chair and the glass and the room and the location and the art and the props and all the actors and the wardrobe and the hair and the makeup and like all of those departments need their instruction to flesh it out. And then they use their incredible creativity to make it even better than you imagined. That's the really sexy part. That's when (laughs) it's like crazy. And and then you film it and commit it to a permanent medium. And then you cut it together to create the story that you saw once upon a time. And that's when it gets like with Brazen, which I did for uh, Netflix. Um, God, was that last year? Yes, 
2021. Yes. Um, you know, I allowed myself to dream about really sexy, fancy shots and we really got them. Um, you know, a lot of it was edited. They, they took the movie from 102 minutes down to like 88 or something, but, um, still many of those shots survived and, um, it really, it feels very powerful to watch again, like something that comes from words on a page and your brain added together makes a reality that someone lives. It's, it's a fascinating process, man. I, it, it's like, it is a level of creativity that, I don't know, maybe the reason I came to it later in my life is because I just wasn't mature enough to own the responsibility that goes along with it. I don't know, mm -hmm. but um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, can I just say it, it's my favorite thing to hear directors describe shots and describing it as a sexy shot is my favorite thing to hear. Like just as a, a cinephile and a film fan, if I'm on set and like, this is going to be a sexy shot. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to give it 120% then. Cause mm -hmm. this is going to be the one. And when yeah. it comes to, you know, working on, you know, Netflix projects or Netflix produced projects like Brazen or uh -huh. Virgin River. I mean, what, uh -huh. What's different about working with, you know, a company of that caliber compared to producing and directing like an independent project? Um, let's see. So uh, let me juxtapose two projects. So hashtag STI um, I did with Philip Webb and Nikki Forsman. Um, I was a producer on, I think, five out of six, and I wrote some of them. Uh, and I directed five out of six and, um, I really, I really loved that experience, but man, was it indie, like, like the budget for the whole series is now my rate. <laughs> like yeah. it was really indie. Oh and God. we were just calling in favors left, right, and center, but it was for a purpose, you know, it was to educate people about sexually transmitted infections in a way that's funny and entertaining and light and sweet. Um, and uh, I felt like I had a real purpose and it's something that I feel strongly about is reproductive health and, and the education that goes along with it. So um and Nikki and Philip are two of my favorite humans on the planet. And then we hired more of my favorite humans, Lindsay George and Toby Gorman. And um, yeah, we just, uh, it, it was just great. Sterling Bancroft, like I, Adrian Wilcox, like I'm just thinking the crew, Mike, like it was just, it was like a family and we structured the days so that we could all have a work-life balance we shot it in places that were convenient to people. Like we made a couple of some impractical decisions and it was just a magical time. It was one of the best creative experiences I've ever had. It was, it was fun. And um, then, you know, you could say the same thing about Virgin river. We're a family. We're five seasons in mm -hmm. I think about the department heads and I chuckle to myself, like, I can't wait to go to the wrap party and somebody's having a house party. Like, I can't wait to see everybody again because they did the first block this year. So I haven't seen them in a couple months. And, um, but there's a professionalism to it for sure. Um, there, you're meant to be working at a heightened level. Uh, just because you're familiar doesn't mean you can slack off. And there are a lot of people when you work for Netflix, you know, their executives are smart and they're talented, but they expect to be heard. And um, there's just an enormous amount of collaboration. When you work on a show like Virgin River, there are showrunners, Sue Tenney, um, now uh, Patrick Sean Smith. and um, so, you know, you need to deliver to their expectations. It's a, it's a different situation. You're not, even though 
you still get to dream. Like you still read the script and you dream about shots and you execute them. Um, you're really delivering someone else's vision. And so you absolutely have to remain open to collaboration at all times. Mm -hmm. I actually really love the collaborative process. Uh, and that is one of the things that I love about Netflix. Um, some networks uh, that I don't work for anymore don't even want to talk to the director. Like they kind of treat really? the director like a second class citizen because they're kind of afraid of the director's power. And so they directors are people that need to be managed and are just getting them through it. So I don't really... I don't really work with that kind of network anymore. And I, I feel like with Netflix, both on the TV side and on the feature side, when I feel really strongly about something and I can present a well-researched, well-thought-out opinion, they really hear me. They respect me. And not on the surface, not like this kind of politically correct respect. The kind of respect that you can feel in your bones that you don't take for granted. Like I would, I would never ask something from them that I didn't need because I would never jeopardize that level of respect that they show me. And um, I'm delighted to return it to them when they need something. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in like, tell me when and where to show up guys. I'm, uh, I'm there. So I, I really, I really love that relationship. They're, they're making less work now. I worked for CBS um, earlier in the year on a movie that Sheryl Crow executive produced with Tom Maza and Karen Glass. And uh, it stars Karen David and Tyler Hilton. And it has a whole musical element. All of, all of the people that perform live country music in the show are country musicians. Um, and that was a phenomenal experience. Justin Thompson Tucker at CBS is, is great. And he's like that. Like they, we were going over the script uh, in pre-production, pre like in development almost. And I had a really strong opinion about something. He really heard me. And I, I was like, you know, this is something I don't want to jeopardize about this story. I think it makes this story unique and special. And it sets it aside from all the other stories of this ilk. And mm. I went on to explain why, and he really heard me. And when he listened to me like that, then from that moment on, when, when he calls me in the middle of my work day and wants to be sure that something's done a certain way, of course, absolutely. Mm. And, and it just, now I'm hoping to work with those guys more like they were great. They were great. So um, I guess that's, that's the thing. There's a professionalism to it. Um, and not to, not to say that Nikki and Philip and I weren't professional, but that was fueled by passion. Hmm. Uh, and, and see, that's kind of unfair too. Virgin River has a lot of passion. Firefly Lane, Vikings Valhalla for sure. Oh yeah. You know, um, I love what I do. I don't know. I mean, I just love it. I love it in all capacities. Like I would go shoot a, a $250,000 movie today. I would do it in a heartbeat. And I would also <laughs> go and do another thing like Valhalla where, you know, I'm away for 13 weeks and you're spending millions and millions and millions of dollars per episode. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's great. I love it. <laughs> That's the real reaction I wanted out of that question. It's just, I don't, this, I, this is just, it's a fantastic lifestyle. And given, you know, your hard work and all the projects you've you worked on and, and led, this is a fun question to ask you. And it's, if you have a party story you could share with us, oh, yeah. uh, something that's occurred during your tenure as this amazing, fantastic director uh, with a story that was so either funny, could be really tragic, could be goofy, could be scary, uh, but something that sticks out so immensely you could easily recant it at a party amongst friends. I see. Well, I have a lot. Um, <laughs> gosh, a party story. 
You know, I mean, going to Mardi Gras and hearing all those people laugh is probably my favorite party story. Um, I'm just going through them all. I say we can redact names. Yeah. <laughs> Protect the guilty. <laughs> party story. Um, God. Or you know what? If there's one, I'm overwhelmed. From... My whole career is rushing back to me because of the questions that you've asked me. Um, well, I will say my uh, my partner and I are huge fans of uh, you know a night before Christmas. So if oh, there's really? yeah, if there's a story from that set, oh, uh, it would really sure. make her day. <laughs> well, God, okay, so that that helps me to hone in on a single project first. Um, the most professional, beautiful unicorn of a creature in the world is Vanessa Hudgens. Um, and I have to say, um, Josh Whitehouse is also um, just glorious. God, I mean, Josh, like just, um, and Harry Jarvis, who was set up at the end for the sequel that never happened. Um, these are some of my favorite people in the world. So I have to say the creative process with them, it was magical. Like I, I, it's, oh, and Emmanuel Shrieky. Oh my God. <laughs> like, I'm just thinking about the cast. That cast was phenomenal. Just phenomenal. Um, but so uh, there was a gentleman, a senior actor, and um, really super professional. He's been in the business 45 years. I worked with him before. He's amazing. And um, we were having, so he was there to do his lines. We had a two shot and a single setup on him he could not get those words out of his mouth. And sometimes, you know, an actor struggling, there are different ways to handle it. I try to let them find their own feet, especially somebody that's that much of a pro. But at the same time, you just, you know, it's not, you don't want, it's like torturing an animal. Like, like if they really can't do it and I couldn't figure out what was going on with him. So I went and just, um, I'd never done this before, not even with children. I just stood next to the camera and fed him the line. He was really, I saw it, he got flushed. I couldn't figure out what was going on. So I fed him the line and it is sometimes harder as you age. Like I can barely remember things these days. I know for senior actors, it's much harder to memorize lines, but these are simple lines. So I was surprised. And um, uh, anyway, we got through it. We gave him a hug. Uh, and then I heard a couple of days later, he decided to retire from acting permanently. And I couldn't, I called and he had suffered a stroke. On, on set? I don't know if it was on set or just before, oh my but God. shortly after he'd gone to the hospital, thank God. And he was fine, but it was one of those things. And and of course, you're just there like, oh, he has stage fright because there are 300 extras and the whole block is lit up and there's a freaking horse in the night and like it's crazy up in here. <laughs> so, um, you know, you ascribe it to nerves and he was kind of like, oh, well, maybe I'm nervous. I don't know what having a stroke feels like, but maybe it feels a lot like being nervous. Um, but uh, anyway, thank God um, he's in the movie. He did a wonderful job. Thank God it was, you know, number one in the world for as long as it was. And um, thank God we were able to give him a, a great send off. But um, so that's, you know, one of those very human moments. Um, I don't want to embarrass Josh and Vanessa. They had tremendous chemistry. <laughs> they broke her in long-term relationships with other people, but um they were terrific at flirting with each other and uh, so good. Uh, but also we had a hundred year flood 
um, we were shooting the parts that we shot. We shot it in Bracebridge, Ontario and Tullamore, Ireland. Mm -hmm. And the parts that we shot in Bracebridge, Ontario were during that huge melt that happened. It was in the spring. Oh my and, God. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, uh, it was outrageous, uh, 30 feet over its banks. It was a national emergency. Like the national guard was lifting people out. It was crazy. Destroyed some of our sets. And <laughs> one more story from that, that I find really funny. You know how the little girls on the ice. Yeah. That was one of those things where our executives who are living in LA have this disconnect. Like it's May, right? You know, it's 75, yeah. 80 degrees outside because it's Ontario. It's like the land of bugs up there in the summer. And yes, Ontario has feet of snow, but in the land of, of Los Angeles, they hear, you know, rural Ontario and they just imagine that it's the Arctic, that it's like frozen 365 days a year. And so they're like, well, how are you, how are you going to have the ice crack? And I'm like, well, I'm not going to put someone's child on ice. Because the safety people were all like, when she's on the ice, she has to have a helmet. I'm like, guys, it's plywood. <laughs> like, it's been hand-painted to look like ice, but it's plywood. Like, you don't <laughs> think I'm going to put someone's kid on ice. And even the guy there on the day standing next to me, we're in tank top sweating. And he's like, I think she needs a helmet. I'm like, it's not slippery. <laughs> it's like floor it's literally the floor dude <laughs> she doesn't need a helmet to walk on the floor <laughs> like i swear to god it's fake but the the painters had done such a phenomenal job nobody believed it wasn't ice they couldn't oh, figure out god. why it wouldn't crack i'm like it's not cracking because <laughs> so i don't know what else to say to you guys that's going to be a visual effect <laughs> It was one of those things. I threw my hands up and walked away. I'm like, you guys are just going to have to trust me that this is going to work in the movie. <laughs> I yeah. don't know what to say. And it does, like, right? Yeah. Oh, it looks great. You can't, because I can only imagine you're like, I, I can't keep losing this conversation. It's right there. I'm going to walk away. We're yeah. done. You know, right <laughs> off camera, those guys are in snow, blizzarding, fur coats, the whole yeah. thing. Right off camera, we're all standing there in shorts and tank tops and baseball caps to protect ourselves from the 